0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Well, the good news is not a lot happened in baseball this week as we welcome you into another edition of the show before the show. Pretty quiet week, the winter meeting's Pretty quiet. Nobody yeah, moved, no, I, no I was, trades. I was trying to scratch my head on what we can talk about. Oh, man, there's nothing to talk about. We knew about. these
0: winter doldrums were coming, and yep. it just happens to come during the winter
1: meetings. It happened to be right during the winter meetings. I'm Joking! Hey, everybody, welcome in. It's episode number 36 of the Minor League Baseball Podcast, the show before the show. I'm Tyler Maughan. He's Sam Dykstra. Uh, yeah, what a week. Uh, the the winter meeting's wrapping up in Nashville, everybody headed back to their uh their minor league baseball locales from coast to coast and uh i mean obviously the the big news of the week is that braves diamondbacks trade we'll talk about that uh rule five draft also was wrapped up there have been some pretty big names that have moved around in the rule five draft today um this is a a very strange and very i would imagine stressful time of year for a lot of guys around the minor leagues but at least now you can kind of start prepping for 2016 if you're these guys
0: yeah, the thing I like about the Rule 5 is that it gives chances to guys who wouldn't have chances otherwise. Yeah. So it, it might be stressful in, in terms of like where am I going, but the idea that somebody wants to reward you with a chance at the majors has to at least feel pretty good.
1: A couple of very uh, early, we'll talk about these names momentarily, uh, but Tyler Goodell was the first pick, uh, formerly of the Tampa Bay Rays, now with the Philadelphia Phillies, a ranked guy. Jake Cave, a ranked prospect from the Yankees organization, now with the Reds. Uh, Number four, Luis Perdomo was actually taken by the Rockies. He was later traded. Colin Walsh went from the Oakland Athletics to the Milwaukee Brewers. Jabari Blash from the Seattle Mariners to the Oakland Athletics. There's already, I mean, a pretty decent amount of names recognizable names guys who have had really really good minor league runs over the last few seasons so we'll talk about them here shortly but let's get to the big news of the week this braves diamondbacks trade which sam wrote up uh a a great recap of this trade headline making sense if any of the miller trade and the lead is wow just wow that's about it i mean you and i were texting when this went down like what on earth is happening initially the story broke And it was that the Diamondbacks had acquired Shelby Miller. I was texting, actually, with a scout that I know uh, in an organization, the American League, who said, from what he had heard, didn't look like the Diamondbacks had given up that much that was going to really harm the major league roster going forward. He really liked the Diamondbacks' moves for this offseason. And then we got word of the prospects that were in this deal, and his next message was, wow, way too much. Uh, this, This trade is nuts. The Diamondbacks and the Braves, if you haven't heard the specifics of it, Right-hander Shelby Miller and left-handed minor league reliever prospect Gabe Spire went from the Atlanta Braves to the Arizona Diamondbacks, while the 2015 first overall selection in the Major League Baseball first-year player draft, Dansby Swanson, number 61 overall prospect via MLB.com in all of baseball, and the Diamondbacks number three, Aaron Blair, and big league outfielder Ender Inciarte all headed to Atlanta. This was a huge deal. I mean, the Diamondbacks are going chips to the center of the table right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you have to kind of remind yourself over and over with this deal is that it's a win now move for Dave Stewart and the D backs. I mean, they really, they had their man, you know, they decided they needed some extra starting pitching even after signing Zach Renke. So Shelby Miller was a hot name on the market. The only way I can make sense of this deal is that they decided, you know, Shelby Miller is gettable. We need a number three starter. Let's go out and get him, whatever it takes. And they paid through the nose for it. I mean, there's no other way of saying it. Uh, you mentioned the piece I wrote, you know, this week. And, um, you know, it, it, it. I talk about the, the eye test. I mean, you just look at it, the number one overall pick. In any other sport, you know, we're talking about the number one overall pick in a draft. Obviously, baseball is a little different. But just in terms of the attention-grabbing headline of trading your number one overall pick, you have to be getting something major in return And Shelby Miller is not necessarily that guy. He he was a good guy last year for the Braves. He's a very good
1: major league pitcher, sure. Right.
0: Yeah, and he used to be a top prospect himself. I mean, I think he was definitely in the top five. Used to be. Now we know what he is a little bit more. 302 ERA last year was worth 3.4 war, Uh, according to Fangrass. You know, all the projections you see have him coming down from that next year. He's a very good number three starter. He's going to work very well in that Arizona rotation. But to give up. Dansby Swanson, who's a shortstop of the future and can be there very quickly, should be a major league shortstop by 2017, a very good one. Aaron Blair, who can be a number three or four starter very quickly, he's already been at AAA, he's probably going to start out the year there next year, very durable guy, you know, a big guy, but has thrown a lot of innings each of the last two years without any signs of slowing down. And then Ender Inciarte, who you know is a gold glove caliber outfielder can play all three spots has played all three spots is a three hundred hitter I mean you just just the eye test alone this doesn 't pass that the smell test, whatever you want to call it this I mean like you were saying, we were texting back and forth this is just i i couldn 't understand it when it happened.
1: It just seems so the diamondbacks have made a handful of these really head scratcher moves, and you and I have talked at length about the Tuki Tucson trade, of course, and um, that I think. Tukey himself very much gave a little inkling into his mindset and the mindset of probably a whole lot of people around baseball. When he tweeted just moments after that trade went down, he tagged Dansby Swanson and Aaron Blair and just tweeted like that stunned emoji face with like the the blush cheeks and the wide eyes. That was all he tweeted at him. Uh, And so I think that probably shows you a lot of what a lot of people are thinking from the let's let's I guess talk about this from the Diamondbacks perspective first. That seems to be it right now. You throw the money out at Zach Granke. You're building around Paul Goldschmidt as one of the premier players in all of baseball. Now you've got Shelby Miller. That team is pretty well loaded uh, starting pitching-wise, which was in this division when you're going to be going against Clayton Kershaw every five days. You used to be going against Clayton Kershaw and Zach Granke uh, on two days out of every five. You have to have that to compete in the National League West with a team like the Dodgers and with a team like the Giants. The Giants threw $90 million to Jeff Samarja. So the Diamondbacks know that, but at what cost? Because now you look at these last few drafts for the Diamondbacks, that's three first-rounders they've sent to the Braves just over the last 10 months or so.
0: That's the funny thing for me, too. It, 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 It would be interesting no matter what, if they had just traded those three first-round picks. It's it's a sign, if you're getting drafted by Arizona now, not that you have any choice in the matter. It's not like you're picking who you get drafted by. But you have to be worried that they're going to flip you very quickly. That being said, the fact that they're going directly to Atlanta and that there's almost a pipeline of first-round picks going from Arizona to Atlanta is just very interesting. I don't know if there's something about those two front offices now that just match up very well, or if it's just Dave Stewart doesn't value you know, picks as highly as we do, you know, it could be any of those reasons. And I think it's just, I, it's more happenstance. They've they've found good partners in each other, willing to to deal.
1: Well, and what I found a little bit strange about this, and we'll talk about this from the Braves' perspective momentarily, but is that when you look at the teams that have been successful in recent seasons in Major League Baseball, the the clubs that have built the most sustainable success have not done it by winning the offseason, quote-unquote. The Padres last year, the White Sox last year, the Marlins a few years ago, that type of thing. But look at the teams that were in the postseason this year. And the teams are on the biggest upswing. The Houston Astros, who have been the the rebuilding project of the century. Chicago Cubs have built very largely from within. The Pittsburgh Pirates have built from within. The Kansas City Royals have built from within. The Cardinals, you could even make the argument, are sort of the same way. Really, the only exception to that rule is the Dodgers, because they have a massive payroll and they go out and acquire a lot of Major League talent via the checkbook. But the Dodgers minor league system is loaded, too. So this this approach of shipping away long-term controlled assets in exchange for short-term controlled major league talent doesn't seem like it's really borne itself out to be that successful yet at the major league level. That's what I think is so confusing and so perplexing about this for the Diamondbacks is they've they've had a lot of talent in the minor leagues and now it's not there anymore because of this approach. Yeah.
0: And that's the interesting thing just to go back to the Braves perspective on this. And you know, we talked the Sean Newcomb trade and Angleton Simmons and we were kind of scratching our heads saying that, wasn't that much to get for Angelton Simmons, who was a guy who could build around. Now it's almost balanced out. They, they've they they've decided, as much as Arizona has decided to go for it in terms of uh, you know stockpiling major league talent and paying whatever it needs to make that happen, Atlanta has gone the other way and is doing the very interesting thing of stockpiling young talent as much as they can. I mean, I, th- I think they have, <laughs> they, the way their system is built now, they could have one of the best triple-A, double-A AA rotations around. Yeah and those are just all guys who you hope one day are going to be in your rotation but you only have five spots for that not that i'm saying you should plan you know this is how you plan for that you just throw arms at it and see who hits and who doesn't you know I, I, as much as i wanted to doubt the Braves at the start of the offseason now i'm i'm in for what they're doing and interested to see what else they can do maybe Freddie Freeman becomes available now i don't
1: know 17 Of the Braves, 30 ranked prospects have been acquired from other organizations. The vast majority of those have been via trades. There's guys like Dan Winkler was a Rule 5 pick. He's number 29. Um, Beyond just that, nine of the top 12 ranked prospects in the Braves organization have been acquired via trade. That includes now their number one, that's Dansby Swanson, their number two, Sean Newcomb, their number four, Aaron Blair, and their number five, Tukey Tucson. So it's not just that the Braves are acquiring talent, They're acquiring top-level talent, uh, and they're not getting swindled in these deals. And I think a lot of people look at the Diamondbacks. I mean, when the Braves somehow got Tuki Tucson, I think most people assumed that like there had been some type of hypnosis uh, affected on the Diamondbacks front office that enabled that deal to go down because nobody else seemed to really understand the reasoning behind that. For this, at least, you can see the major league return. The Diamondbacks feel like they're getting a front-line starter, maybe a number two. That, I guess, you can sort of justify, but at this cost, I mean, is is Shelby Miller really going to bring you that much more than what you conceivably could have gotten out of Aaron Blair, uh, or somebody like Archie Bradley? By the way, if Archie Bradley gets him figured out, gets healthy, and gets up to the Major League level and, and performs to what the Diamondbacks have long thought his ability could be, um, is that worth Dansby Swanson? I mean, that's what it ultimately comes down to. And Dave Stewart, the, the Diamondbacks' front office, seemed like the the consensus yesterday was, we really didn't want to get rid of Dansby. That was going to be the thing that could torpedo this deal, but then they did.
0: Yeah, well, that that all sounds well and good until they yeah. actually did it. So right. it's like, it's a, they said the same thing about Tukey. They had to pry him out of our hands. Well, you you made him available. Right, exactly. That's, they said the can't same can't thing about Tukey Tucson. Like, yeah. It's, uh, um, you know, the only way I see this, they have to win at least one World Series yeah, in the next three years when they have Shelby Miller in control. And Shelby Miller has to be a major contender or a con- contributor, excuse me, um, in that World Series run for me- to make this justifiable. And for everybody saying you have to wait it out, I understand that like Dan P. Swanson, you know, might not be what we think he is now. That could happen. Aaron Blair might not be what we think he is. And her NCRT could all of a sudden not hit next year or something. But the way these guys are currently valued, I mean there's tons of research out there. For that kind of thing, these guys are valued right now as a package of having a surplus value of close to 110 million dollars, and what they're going to get out of Shelby Miller in that same kind of figure is about 25 million dollars. I mean, these are actual things we can look at, and it's just it's it's a major head scratcher, even you know, no matter what way you slice it.
1: Shelby Miller last year, I think this is the thing, and we again, we're not going to discuss the major league impact of this really quite as much as the minor league impact, but one of the things I think you have to keep in mind if you're a Diamondbacks fan is Shelby Miller in 2014 – Allowed 1.1 home runs per nine innings. He cut that nearly in half last year to 0.6. That trend is not going to continue in Arizona. Because where the ball jumps is in Arizona. It's in Colorado. This division is not conducive to that, especially when you're pitching half of your starts uh, at the, the former Bob. I don't call it Chase Field. It's still the Bob to me. <laughs> um, so that, I think, is a little bit concerning if you're a Dimebacks fan. But more than that, it, what it indicates about the D-backs front office seems strange. Because, again, no, you can't necessarily judge this trade right away. Can't do that with any trade in baseball, especially when it involves prospects. But you can judge the trend of the Diamondbacks now being more than willing to part with elite talent that they've gone out to get in the first round of the draft. That's not yeah. something we're seeing in a whole lot of other places. We have seen other teams have been content. The Kansas city Royals have dealt away a couple of first round picks and Sean and I and Brandon Finnegan. So it's not just an Arizona thing, but this is a relatively new trend in baseball. And also the other thing that's strange, uh, Dansby Swanson gets to go directly to the Braves. This is not a Trey Turner situation. Yeah. No,
0: i wonder if this would have even been on the table. Uh, like Trey Turner is the first. I had heard in a while of a, a first round talent like that immediately being dealt. And everybody knows he's knows he's the player to be named later. Can you imagine if it broke that, you know, this trade went down and, oh, there's going to be a player to be named later and we're all sitting there saying, oh, okay, that's fine. And like a week later, it breaks that, oh, no, Dansby Swanson's going to be that player to be named later. Like if it was Aaron Blair and Ender Inciarte alone, we would have been okay. I think that, yeah, you know, that, that would have been a tough pill to swallow, but it, it would have been made sense a little bit. But if it was and a third player to be named later, by the way, that's the number one overall pick. We would have all lost our minds even more so in a more of a slow burn type situation. So if I'm another team and I'm looking to deal with the Diamondbacks, I'm immediately asking about Archie Bradley. I mean, he was their first round pick 2011, yeah. their top prospect now. You know, a guy who's pitching the majors still has that very raw talent. I'm immediately asking for him in any trade.
1: Yeah, if I'm a, a an elite level prospect. Yeah, I don't feel very comfortable about my standing in that organization right now. I mean, I think that's, as of right now, and maybe this is not going to be the case, I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that you have a guy like Paul Goldschmidt, you really want to put the best possible team around for his his prime years. But this is definitely a, a very different uh, concept of building a contending team than what the norm has been in Major League Baseball for the last five years or so. It's been interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and they're, they're still being buoyed about, I mean, everybody under the sun has been attached to Jose Fernandez in in terms of like, what could they give away? That's not, you know, half their roster. That was the other thing.
1: I think we initially thought, um, you know, this will be, uh, this is the type of package that would get you somebody like Jose Fernandez. And then the tweets started coming out of what the, uh, the Marlins were asking for from the Dodgers, for Jose Hernandez, Did you see those? That was all insanity. They yeah. were basically requesting Corey Seager, Julio Urias, uh, Jock Peterson, and maybe one or two other pieces.
0: Yeah, I think that's all sorts of like that's what they were asking. That's a bluster in their due diligence and negotiation.
1: Right? right? Anybody in baseball is available when that's the return package i think right like, i think you could say anybody's available if that's what you're gonna get i think it was the most measured
0: i've ever seen twitter in the way everybody was kind of responding it was like yeah the marlins can ask and the dodgers can say no and that's just how that's gonna go like it's you know that's both are reasonable in doing that they're both doing their jobs by at, saying yes or saying no um instead of blowing up at like why would the marlins ever ask for that because they have the The opportunity, the the most exciting young arm in baseball. You you ask for the moon, the stars, and everything else, all the galaxies when you have that chip in your pocket.
1: All right, Sam, let's move on. Rule 5 draft uh, held Thursday morning in Nashville, final day of the winter meetings, and uh, really headlined by Um, A couple of outfielders who went with the first two picks. Tyler Goodell, formerly of the Tampa Bay Rays, now with the Philadelphia Phillies. Jake Cave, formerly of the New York Yankees organization. He is now with the Cincinnati Reds. That was in the first round of the major league portion of the draft. And, of course, there are the AAA rounds that came a little bit later on, Uh, five of those rounds. Double-A round only saw one player selected. That was Juan Caballero, who went from the St. Louis Cardinals to the Miami Marlins. But give me just the the names that have stuck out to you and the the biggest storylines from this.
0: Well, I'll kind of just start with the storyline in that the uh, Padres – you know They made it, uh, I think, two trades to get more Rule 5 guys. They're going to have four Rule 5 guys going into s- spring training, meaning they're they're going to try to shoehorn four different people onto their major league roster uh, between Luis Perdomo, uh, Josh Martin, Jabari Blash, and Blake Smith. Uh, so that that's just kind of interesting, the way they're going to try to finagle that. I think it's more just taking a chance. I mean, Rule 5 picks cost you $25,000. Let's say two of these hit. That's that's not that's a pretty good draft one out of two, in in terms of a rule five thing you you get two major leaguers for fifty thousand dollars, um, so that that's immediately what struck out to me and it's kind of a signal to me that the Padres are just gonna try to you know finagle this roster and after they were the winter meetings winners last year or, you know off season winners last year, uh, it's a completely different situation for them this year. Uh, I'm sure it's disappointing for fans to kind of think like. Because you don't get starters in the Rule 5 draft. That's just not, you know, Delano, DeShields, Audubel, Herrera, those guys kind of lucked out last year, but that's certainly not the norm. Um, I'm I'm very excited to see what Perdomo can do. I think he was the highest prospect drafted, was number 11 in the Cardinals system. Uh, a guy who hadn't pitched higher than high A and really spent most of the year at Class A Peoria this year, uh, had 3.980 array, 118 strikeouts. Uh, one of those guys, though, when you get him into a bullpen, which is, I think, what the Padres will eventually try to do they want to keep him as a starter but it's easier to move him back into the bullpen Uh, his stuff will just play up extremely well there he's the type of guy who could probably handle that big jump he made a big jump this year was a futures gamer Uh, I I would love to see what can happen with Jabari Blash too and speaking of you know guys uh, he was taken by Oakland from Seattle but then he was flipped to San Diego Uh, hit 32 homers this year between double A and triple A San Diego bigger park Gonna run into some problems there, but like you said, you know he gets to play to Arizona. Will be able to play to Colorado if he does stick out of spring training. Love to see him get a chance.
1: What uh, we'll pull the curtain back a little bit. By the time you're hearing this tomorrow, our uh, Seattle Mariners organization All Star story is going to be out, and Jabari Blash is on that list. Uh, and I got a chance to talk to Pat Listash, who was his manager with Triple A Tacoma this year, and that was one of the things that Pat said was uh, kind of two different things that play into this very much. Pat said he saw from day one that kid's going to hit with a lot of power he's going to hit a lot of homers so he started to slot him into the lineup and then got a little bit of pushback from the organization saying now we want to get more innings for these guys etc so there were a lot of guys ahead of jabari blash on the depth chart in the mariners organization i think that contributes to it more than anything Uh, but this is the thing that's cool about the rule five Draft. It's like you said it gives guys a second chance guys who are in a circumstance like that where they're either blocked at a certain position in a certain organization or just it seems like it's time for them to move on they get that change of scenery they get an opportunity to go somewhere new and i mean you said it right there delano de shields Odubel herrera those are two guys from last year who really made their names known as as pretty well household names in 2015 in the big leagues that's more often than not not really uh more often than not it's the case that you don't get a major league starter impact level type of guy out of the rule five draft but if you can hit on gems like that that's why this thing exists i mean so guys can get opportunities who maybe don't have them in certain spots
0: yeah, yeah, definitely, and there's you go even further back. I mean, Jose Batista was taken in the Rule Five draft. Roberto Clemente, I think George Bell. I mean, the good guys can come through this system. It's it's kind of one of the nicer things about the way baseball is set up, and I can't think of a, a similar thing in other sports. Um, just kind of also looking through this, you know, there's a Triple A portion too, which is just guys who are not on a Triple A roster. Anybody can be picked. I think it only costs twelve thousand dollars to make a pick in the. The triple A portion, and once you do that, you can put them anywhere, so it doesn't, it's not like they have to be on the triple A roster all year. Um, and so there's some intriguing names. The one that kind of stuck out there for me, um, is Mike O'Neill, he's a guy who went to USC, he's college coming out of college, just one of those pure, uh, you know, pure contact guys. Uh, whenever I look at his numbers, they always pop out. He had a 400. OBP this year in double A AA and triple A for his career. He's got a 3.11 average, 4.12 OBP, but his slugging percentage this year was only 3.19. Guy sees the ball extremely well. I I I can't imagine that there isn't a team in baseball that wouldn't like him as their fifth outfielder just because he's going to reach base at such an, a great clip, but he just doesn't have the power uh to move. So now he's going from the Cardinals to the Cubs, maybe the Cubs you know give him that chance at Iowa I would love to see him in the majors just to get that shot, just to see what he can do against some major league pitching. See if his eye worked that well. But yeah, today's just kind of an exciting day for so many different people in terms of, you know, their their roads upwards get cleared a little bit
1: what i think is cool um and of course i obviously if you've listened to the show i've got a little bit of a uh kind of a soft spot for the australian baseball league but there are some guys who are down there right now playing or have been down there but max tisenbaum is a catcher formerly in the rays organization now in the marlins organization and max got selected in this draft so that's got to be a little strange because now you're sort of orphaned ten thousand miles away like oh is somebody gonna get in touch with me for my new team (laughs) what else do i do down here
0: they probably look it up and he's like, oh, he's in Australia. We'll just reach him when he gets.
1: Or they've got Twitter down there. He yeah, could- they've got Twitter. They could shoot him a DM. Slide into the DMs. Slide into the DMs. So go check out uh, Sam's story. It's up right now on the uh, the highlights of the Rule Five selections, and it's got a full, comprehensive list, and well as notes, um, as well as notes from the 2015 season for all the guys who were taken in this draft. Um, and uh, the the rest of the winter meetings, otherwise, relatively quiet. There were some other deals. Um, we did see uh, a trade yesterday the Philadelphia Phillies, made a deal, uh, went out and got Derek Fisher, who is a guy who we followed a lot this past summer uh, from the Houston Astros organization, traded uh, along with Major League pitchers Vince Velasquez and Brett Oberholzer. Velasquez, of course, formerly a, a ranked prospect and a pretty highly regarded one in the Astros organization. Brett Oberholzer is actually kind of cool for him. He's from Wilmington, Delaware, which is just up the road from Philadelphia, so uh, pretty neat for him to get a, a chance to go closer to home. They are all swapped to the Phillies in exchange for closer Ken Giles. So uh, Ken Giles is a type of guy who fits into, I think, a bunch of different spots in that bullpen right now. If on the Astros, I have the opportunity to throw him into a variety of different roles, whether it's set up or closing, so that gives Houston a little bit of depth at the major league level with somebody like Giles. But you send – pretty good talent package the other direction. Um, and that's the stuff that the Phillies need. The Phillies need to hit on these types of deals where you're selling off one asset to acquire multiple. And you really hope if you're a Phillies fan, you're, if you're in somebody in that front office that somebody like Derek Fisher is, is going to be a piece that contributes in relatively short span of time.
0: Yeah. And just kind of, we were talking before about the D backs and what or the, the Braves, excuse me, and how many guys have been traded into their top you know prospects and, um just kinda of looking over Phillies right now, you know, after that Hamels trade and now Fisher, four of their top eight have come via trade. Uh and Zach Eflin, you know, was involved in a trade last year, so he's nine, so five of nine. Um so they're they're doing their due diligence and acquiring guys. Um I, I kinda like this from the Astros point of view in that uh you know, the Red Sox came out and traded a lot of top talent, uh specifically, you know, Margot and Guerra for a really, really good closer. Um, and Craig Kimbrell and now I think the Astros are getting a very good uh, reliever like you said he could be used in multiple roles will probably be a closer in Houston but he's much more controllable he's much cheaper in Ken Giles and uh, you know they didn't have to give up you know one of their top 100 guys I mean Velasquez hurts uh, you know Oberholzer he's an advanced guy but um, nothing that's really going to kill him uh, Derek Fisher could turn into somebody he's an exciting bat at the very least so look out next year at Redding. But I, I, as far as the Astros, I don't think they, they their system took a shellacking in quite the way the Red Sox or certainly the uh, D-backs did.
1: So there were some other deals uh, throughout the the week in the winter meetings. Not, I don't think it was as... Well, maybe we were all kind of thrown into the, the ringer last year with the Padres December, but it's it felt quieter this year. The winter meetings felt quieter this year than they have in, in the past couple of seasons. I mean,
0: yeah. Well, One thing about the meetings, too, is that you know, a lot of people touch base in this kind of right, stuff. Right, so, right. There's a lot yeah. of
1: groundwork laid.
0: Right. Wait until we get to January before we decide that uh, December has been kind of quiet. Because I remember looking through, and I think a lot of trades went down after. So, you know, I think a lot of names have been discussed, a lot of things thrown around, and it's certainly not, not over. It'll just be done via text message instead of
1: over lunch now. What an insane just atmosphere that's the winter meetings are a fun thing if you've never gotten a chance to go to the winter meetings put it on your calendar for 2016 because they are a whole lot of fun just walking around hotel lobbies there's gms and owners and players and agents and people milling around and it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun so uh winter meetings wrapping up for 2015 and uh kind of the dust maybe starting to settle on how rosters will look for the 2016 season but still obviously a whole lot of time before we get to that uh what are we going to next benjamin hill uh on scene at the winter meetings this week We'll get uh, we'll get Ben's take. Should we go to Ben next? What, what are we doing next, Sam? This yeah, let's so, go to Ben. We're next. so relaxed in the offseason. <laughs> all right, we'll do
0: it. Yeah, I, I think that sounds good to me. Let's go. To, we'll phone in Ben.
1: Benjamin Hill, job seeker journals. Uh, Pat O'Connor with a speech. Uh, a whole lot of stuff as it pertains to MILB at the winter meetings this week, and Ben will tell us all about it next. Meeting's conversation for us, obviously, but neither Sam nor I was on the ground in Nashville at the Gaylord Opryland, Opryland Gaylord Resort and Hotel and Spa and and Casino and Tribute. It's a very long name for that place, is what I'm getting at. Benjamin Hill was there. Hi, Ben.
2: Hey, guys. Good to be here. Good to be back from Nashville, from the Opryland. I just call it the Opryland. Okay, that works. That's that's, that's pretty so much, much what everyone.
3: Say.
2: Yeah, yeah, pretty much what everyone calls it. uh my very first winter meetings was in 2007, and in the Opryland, and I didn't know what to make of it because I was still very green at that time as regards the the job I do. But now that I'm back, you know, I I, I kind of understand the beast of the winter meetings in the Opryland. But this place is uh, nine acres, and it's a cliche. I'm sure you saw it all week on Twitter about how easy it is to get lost, but it is. And you're among like you know rivers and vegetation and shopping centers and bars <laughs> and restaurants and it is a self-contained universe. It's a very surreal place, and uh, it makes the winter meetings, which are already surreal, even more surreal because it all contains 100% of the meetings is all you know contained within that bubble.
1: That place is a total labyrinth, and there were a lot of things, obviously, that went down on the the players' side. But there's more stuff that goes down on the business side, um, and there's been a ton of stuff. This has been one of Ben's big weeks of the seasons when you crank out just story after story after story. Uh, the job seeker journals, obviously, are one of the things that we want to focus on most. We talked about them a little bit last week, but now those are in the books. Um, what was it like meeting that quartet of uh, of job seekers for this year? Um, getting a chance to finally let them, you know, exercise their voice and, and be out there in the not just in the, the world of the winter meetings, but getting to put the stuff on the blog. I mean, how has that been now? Kind of not looking back at it yet because it's not fully wrapped up, but now that it's almost uh, put away for 2015.
2: Yeah, I mean, 2015 was the fourth year I recruited job seekers to write about their experience at the PBE PBEO job fair. And uh, you know, I, I've really come to enjoy it. You know, it's an extra layer of work for me every day. I'm not complaining, but I do it for a reason because when you hear about the winter meetings, obviously you're only really hearing, you know, mostly about the big trades and everything else. And there's so many other things going on. And the, probably the most neglected aspect is, you know, these people, six, 700 people looking for a job. So by giving voice to four of them, you know, I can, uh, you know, boost their profile, which I I really think helps. And, you know, all throughout the meetings, people are saying to me like, Oh yeah, I've been checking out your job seekers or who you got this year. And, um, you know, it also, I think allows future job seekers to check out what you know, my job seeker journal writers have written and get a sense of what the experience is really like. Um, I think one thing you learn is that almost no one shows up to the winter meetings on Sunday and leaves on Wednesday with a new job. It's mostly maybe you get some interviews, maybe you have some leads for the future. Maybe you realize you're not going to get anything, but you met a lot of people and you got your foot in the door and you're going to be that much more well positioned for next year. Um, you know, there's so many variables. But, uh, you know, those, those job seekers are really hustling. Um, you know, my path to my job was not through that avenue, and I didn't have to do it. Um, and I respect, you know, what they, what they do to get their foot in the door and, and seeing them all together, you know, in the uh, interview rooms, waiting for interviews to be posted, just mingling around. You see how many of them, and that gives you a sense of how competitive the industry is. So I had four, you know, Tori, Jim. Will and David, uh, you know, different ages and backgrounds and experience levels and whatnot. Um, But I've been running their posts all week and uh, none of them has anything to declare right now in terms of a job they got or did not get or whatever. But I'll check back with them with them next year. And uh, it was great meeting them. And, you know, I wish them the best. And it's, it's just something I'm happy to be a part of.
0: Yeah, I've been kind of looking over, you You did a, a whirlwind piece, as we kind of called it, wrap-up piece on the winter meetings, um, other stuff you kind of looked at. One thing I, I wanted to ask about was the, you know, re-election of Pat O'Connor uh, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, he was run unopposed, obviously unanimous support. Um, but what does it mean, you know, from where you said, from where what you've seen, to have him back as my early president? Well,
2: you know, Pat O'Connor... Um you know, he's been with the minor league baseball office in St. Petersburg, you know, since the early nineties. So he's someone who really obviously has a very strong grasp on the industry as a whole. Um, He was elected for the first time at the 2007 winter meeting. So he had a first year, uh, a four-year term 2008 to 2012, then again, 2012 to now. And he was reelected on Tuesday for a new four-year term starting um, in January of 2016, 2016. And the fact that he ran unopposed and that it was a complete afterthought really in in terms of the meetings themselves. I mean, there was zero talk about the presidential election really because it was completely not an issue because it was going to be Pat O'Connor. And, you know, it's an industry of 160 teams. I'm sure if you interviewed the owners and GMs of all 160 teams, you'd of course get some dissension in the ranks or things that people disagree with with Pat O'Connor with. But on the whole, I mean, he's had a remarkably conflict free presidency in terms of the industry being fairly united in terms of goals stated and goals achieved or working towards achieving goals. And uh, all things considered, you know, through some tough economic times, this industry has done pretty well. And Pat O'Connor has been at the helm. And I think there's very much a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of feeling. Um, I actually went to the presidential election. It started at four o'clock. They did a roll call, you know, just every league in alphabetical order where the president would say here. And then they said, okay, now we're going to vote. And they did the same thing, each league in alphabetical order. Every league president said "I," And then it was like done. It was six minutes. You know, we're so used to elections being long and drawn out, and contested and bitter and blah, blah, blah. This was as uh, drama-free as the uh, democratic process can be. So I guess there's something to be said for that.
1: I feel like Pat O'Connor should just throw his hat in the ring for the 2016 presidential race at this, at this stage. I mean, might as well. If it's that simple yeah. for him, <laughs>
4: but, yeah,
2: he's never had. yeah. I mean, he's never held political office. But given the candidates we have out there now, I think he's already yeah. better than why not ninety percent of
1: them. He's already <laughs> okay. he's already kind of carry like you know he could all the minor league states. He'd have like he'd win. What is it? Forty six states. I think he's got it. Pat O'Connor, <laughs> right. next president of the U.S. Um, ben, there's a. This is one of the most fascinating stories. That uh, when I initially saw the tweet about this story, I was like, I have to be reading this wrong. But you put together a story. And the headline is drones have complex impact on miners. This is not something that I ever even really considered being a thing. I know when I was in Myrtle Beach working for the Pelicans, we had actually hired a, a drone operator at one time. This is over the offseason, to take you know promotional photos of the ballpark, all that kind of stuff. And that was when drones were still very much in their infancy, and it was only sort of like weirdos who had a uh, photography company and wanted to take cool, uh, innovative shots. Those are the people who had drones. Now you can like get a pizza delivered via drone. So this is really an issue for minor league baseball. Tell us about this thing. It was put on by uh, Ernell Lucas, who's director of security and facility operations for minor league baseball. This came so out of left field, but it sounds like it was really fascinating.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting issue. And kind of like you just said, I'd never really thought about it specifically. But on Monday morning, I woke up and I was kind of like, all right, what am I going to do today? What's my angle? And um, the Bob Frieda's business seminar takes place throughout a, a big chunk of the day on Monday with you know, all these different seminars running concurrently about different topics related to the industry. And so I saw this one listed, you know, about a uh, positive and negative of implications of drones in minor league baseball. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to that because that just sounds interesting. It sounds like something I haven't written about before. We'll just see how it goes. And Ernell Lucas, um, before coming to minor league baseball and working uh, security issues for them, you know, spent something like 25 years in the Milwaukee police force. He's a very, um, you can tell he's a very knowledgeable and uh, capable guy, um, very organized, and very much has that uh, policeman bearing, you know, straight ahead, and no nonsense, very capable. And uh, he had a panel of uh, three people who work in baseball in different capacities, who'd had their own experiences with drones, and they just took it from there. And it's just all these issues I'd never thought about before, um, you know, security issues of What happens when there's a drone flying over the field, you know, and you don't know where that drone came from? You know, what are the procedures there? So they talked about it procedurally from the front office standpoint in terms of notifying security personnel, in terms of being able to notify local law law enforcement, in terms of knowing what are in your state and in your area, because the FAA has not, you know, issued top-down rules and regulations involving drone use. So there's a lot of variables right now. A lot of things to work out. The team has to make sure they have a plan. Um, they had a uh, supervisor there from Peabuck, the Professional Baseball Umpires Corporation, you know, who was talking about how now they have to institute policies for umpires regarding, you know, when you suspend a game if a if a drone is over the field, and making sure that before you resume play that the drone operator has been identified and that drone has, you know, definitely been taken out of circulation for the night. So there's just you know on and on. There's a lot of uh, things to, to consider when it comes to drones and and them appearing over the ballpark. And then there's a the flip side of teams can use drones you know to get images of the ballpark they've never used before to use it in their promotional videos, to get photography that they can use for marketing and sell in the team store. So there are positive implications as well. But if you're going to go in that route, you know, you have to make sure that you've told everyone beforehand, hey, we're running, you know, we're going to be having a drone tonight in case anyone does see it. You know, umpires don't stop the game. This one's authorized. Uh, you know, make sure fans know that it's coming because then there's issues with fans being distracted by a drone and then the likelihood of getting hit by a foul ball <laughs> increases. I mean, who knew?
0: Yeah, that really wasn't anything I had thought of either. I know Tyler was talking about that, but there there is one cool picture in, in this story that you have of just a purple sky i don't think i've ever seen before taken i do, do you know where this picture was taken um that was in your story it's just i can't tell myself um yeah but that, anyway. was,
2: that was that was the bowling green hot rods and uh, that Adam was bowling was green GM, Okay. yeah the gm of the bowling green hot rods was on the panel and he was he had been asked by ernell lucas to be on the panel because he was one of the individuals who had gotten in touch and said hey we want to use a drone to get these photos, to get marketing materials, to get a photo we can sell in the team store. And he talked to Ernell beforehand to get, you know, some procedures in place for what should we do? How can we handle this? And uh, because he had gone through that experience, you know, he was there to share his experience and even him, you know, even though he went through the right channels and notified the police officer on site at the game, there were other police officers in Bowling Green who didn't know, that that drone was authorized and actually showed up at the ballpark and tried to arrest the drone operator. So, you
1: know.
2: (laughs) Keep in mind, kids.
1: Keep in mind. (laughs) You could could draw way more attention than you intend to by flying your drones around. uh, Basically anywhere, but minor league baseball. The thing I like about this Bowling Green shot is that uh, earlier on this year, somebody tweeted at the Hot Rods that they were driving by – the ballpark during batting practice and her car almost got hit by a home run ball that somebody had uh, launched over the right field wall. I didn't really have like a concept of how this road went past the ballpark, but now I see it in that shot. Now it makes it okay. I, the only reason I noticed that is because the hot rod tweeted back at her and said, sorry about that.
2: Hey, and there you go. And if we had drawn <laughs> photos from every stadium, So now we know. You see, yeah. You could see just how likely it might be to get hit, you know, get hit by baseball as you drive out of the stadium, you know, what do so we, we know? Weird world.
1: Uh, Benjamin Hills on Twitter. He is at Ben's Biz, and uh, not just coming at us with his content that's on the site this week, but Ben also did an interview uh, down in Nashville this past week, and unfortunately it's a circumstance we never really want to have to talk about, the world of minor league baseball and the real world colliding in such a horrific way. But after the shootings in San Bernardino last week, uh, Ben ran into uh, Inland Empire 66ers general manager Joe Hudson on his team's response to that shooting. Uh, they obviously held a vigil at the ballpark and, and were really involved. Involved in the the days after, um, so Ben, uh, anything that you know it, you kind of want to lead into this interview with, in addition to just the content of the interview itself, because it's a really, we were talking about it a minute ago before we started the segment. It's weird for us sometimes to have to cross that line of talking about such real world events with people in the world of minor league baseball. But it seems I would imagine it was pretty uh, a nice escape for these guys from Inland Empire to at least be able to get out of town for a little while.
2: Yeah. You know, I I imagine that it must have been given uh, the situation they've had to deal with in the the last couple of weeks before coming to the winter meetings. But no, I think you set up the uh, interview segment pretty well. It was just an idea that came to me during the meetings, like, hey, this is something we should address. And, you know, writing about minor league baseball all the time or just baseball in general you know it's an important industry there's a lot going on it, it's it employs many people it, it entertains millions of people so it's obviously something worth talking about and covering like we all do but um you know sometimes we feel a little removed from the world at large and we never want such a tragic event to so directly affect a minor league team but i think it is important to talk about how teams are a big part of their communities and how they have to address Um, the situation in their own way, you know, when something like that occurs.
1: Benjamin Hill and Inland Empire 66ers General Manager Joe Hudson.
3: Hi, I'm Ben Hill here at the Winter Meetings at the Opryland Hotel here in Nashville, Tennessee. And today I'm speaking with Joe Hudson, the General Manager of the Inland Empire 66ers. Joe, thanks for taking a few minutes to speak with me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And unfortunately, what we're here to talk about today is uh, the tragic events that occurred in your community, in your almost your backyard last week, the uh, the shootings in uh, San Bernardino at the Inland Regional Center, which killed 14 people. Um, that being your community, you have a lot to process there. I mean, so when you first heard the news, I mean, how did you process it?
4: Um, shock, shock. I mean, absolute uh, shock. Uh, not so much disbelief, but just shock and, and immense concern for Uh, the families for the police uh, first responders uh, everybody involved um, you know that location is only a couple miles away from the ballpark and there's people on staff including myself that are from San Bernardino uh, born and raised and just to have something like that uh, in the community was was really tough
3: yeah and obviously shock has to be the first reaction and then you must think that could be someone I know that very likely could be someone I know was on staff. Was there kind of a gathering to make sure everyone was
4: okay and accounted for? Yeah. Well, I mean, on staff, we knew where our staff was. We, you know, everybody's there. Uh, but you know, when you think, when you think about on staff, when you think about the 66ers family, you know, I think about everybody and and that includes, uh, our game day employees, our game day family and, you know, even our fans. Um, but right after the shock, the, you know, one of my first concerns were were that of uh, the SBPD. Um, and, I, and, you know, I say all first responders, and obviously they're there but our our security at our facility is run by, by SBPD. And so we get to know a lot of these guys. They're great people, um, and they're part of our family. And so immediately, you know, that's one of the things we thought about, that's one of the things I thought about, and I actually text uh, a couple of the guys, and uh, just told them, you know, stay safe, Um, but yeah. And as a franchise, had you had a pre-existing relationship
3: with the Inland Regional Center?
4: Yeah, we had worked with them in the past on a number of things. as you probably know through the different media reports, but they work with uh, uh, disabled members in our community. And so every year we hold a disabilities awareness uh, or disability clinic um, and disability awareness night at our facility. And we've worked with them a number of years in a row of, of bringing people out and being a part of that. And so, you know, that was another concern when we found out where it's at and what's going on. Um, you know, a couple people on our staff that deal directly with them reached out and at that point there's you know what can you do or what can you say but um but it was we had a vigil the day after and it was really nice to be able to host the entire board of uh the irc out and and just tell them how sorry we are for for everything for for their business for the community for you know for everybody involved
3: yeah you mentioned the vigil and uh Yeah, I wanted to talk about that a little more. I mean, you had so much to process and to go through the shock of it like everyone else, but then pretty soon you had to switch over into a practical, pragmatic mode of thinking and saying, we as a community gathering space need to host this event for the community. So when how did that come to be, and and what was the process in putting that together on very short notice?
4: Well, you know, immediately after it happened, um, I had a, a quick meeting with my staff, and, you know, just one of those things where you don't know what you're going to say when you walk in the room. know I, I had no idea. I just knew that you know I had to say something to the staff, and I just let them know, you know, this this is tough. You know, we're going through this. The community is going to need us. I don't know. And I said, I don't know what we're going to do or how we're going to do it, uh, but we need to start thinking about it. Uh, but I said, in the meantime, go home, everybody. You know, go home. Or if if you feel like you have to get some work done, get it done. But we, you know, locked down the facility and, and the vast majority of the office went home and, and uh, they were with their families. And, and that's, I think that's what you want to do in a situation like that. That's that's just your gut feeling is you want to be home. And so we did that. Uh, later that night, as I was continuing to watch the, the updated news reports, I, uh, I saw the mayor speak and, you know, when uh, Mayor Davis said, you know, we're thinking about, hosting individual, we don't know what yet, uh, immediately I, I thought, you know, if that's going to happen, it, it needs to be at our ballpark. I mean, it, it just makes so much sense. And so I uh, I emailed them uh, at that point, and they were they were on the ball. They, they got back to me immediately and said, we appreciate the offer. We'll get back to you and let you know. And uh, at 7 a.m. the next morning, they said, we want to do this. Let's do it tonight. So...
3: Yeah, so that came came together very quickly. And yeah. uh, what was the mood at the ballpark?
4: Yeah, there was a lot of different uh, emotions. I think at the ballpark, um, obviously, there's people grieving for for the families, for the victims, for the community, um, and then there was a lot of positivity for our first responders that have gotten just an immense amount of praise for how well they did, how well they reacted and, and executed their jobs, uh, the lives that they probably saved. Uh, and so when you have that the ability to, to bring the community together uh, in a grieving process, but at the same time to, to acknowledge and think, you know, this, the first responders that did such an amazing job and be a part of that that was that was great so there's a positivity and, and a strength that was kind of communicated throughout the uh the the vigil of uh the community is stronger than this one act than this one event and uh so there's the grieving but then there's the strength that's coming through it uh as well as the positivity so
3: yeah and then uh shortly after that vigil took place you kind of Embarked on your next endeavor related to this tragedy, and you're now selling uh, T-shirts. Yeah. uh, San Bernardino strong. Yeah. Um, Obviously, that's a charitable effort. And
4: how did that come Mm -hmm. about? Well, so everything was very fluid. I guess it's happening so fast. Uh, You know, that night we, uh, the night of the incident itself, I I saw a logo come across uh, uh, social media. I I got it over to Matt Qualis. uh, on our uh, marketing side and said, you know, I think we should think about something like this uh, to create, to show strength as an organization for the community. And when we hosted the vigil, uh, Matt had uh, kind of brought together this this uh, logo that we had kind of used from somebody that we saw on Facebook, tweaked it a little bit to make it a little bit more clear, and we started using it within the facility during, on the video board. On, on We actually... Immediately went and got uh, signs made uh, the day of for all of our parking signs that showed SB Strong. So when people came in the ballpark, from the moment they entered the gates, we wanted them to know that, you know, the 66ers are and the community is stronger than this. And uh, uh, that was just, it was just for the vigil, really. And then, uh, you know, as a couple people uh, came up to us that night and said, you know, if that was on a shirt, we'd buy it. You know, you should sell shirts. And when, it, when Matt first brought it to me, he said, I said, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to do that because I, I want to make sure that if we were to do something like that, we had the right, uh, uh, the right foundation to donate that to. Because everybody always wonders, who can you do it to? Is the money really going to go there? And I didn't want to be part of that controversy. You know, I, I wanted nothing to do with that. But, uh, but I was on a flight and Matt was working hard and he found the United Way and the county had come together for the families. that that specifically said, you know, anything that's brought here is going to go 100% to the families. And so as soon as he told me about finding that that foundation, I said, absolutely, you know, let's do it. And we were lucky enough to have a great partner of ours. Uh, blue ribbon ink and thread that is doing all the screen printing for free. Uh, He actually got uh, his provider of shirts to donate the first thousand t-shirts for free. So whereas we thought they were going to run us about $4 with $16 to be going right to the families, uh, lucky enough the first thousand are going to be 100%, uh, $20 going to the families each and every time. And right now we're about 700 uh, shirts sold.
3: Nice. And and if people are interested in getting these shirts,
4: uh, they can go to your website, to the oh yeah, absolutely. please do go to the website. Show up at the ballpark, whatever. Uh, we've we've asked uh, uh, some of our partners in baseball, uh, you know, the rest of the Cal League teams, uh, the rest of the Elmore Group teams, uh, to share. The Angels have shared the the link for purchasing these uh, shirts, and um, you know whether you are a resident of San Bernardino or not, um, the shirt's going to represent something that I think everybody in America can be proud of. Absolutely. And uh, in terms of continuing
3: to be proud of, uh, you know, the community's response to this tragedy and, and uh, finding whatever positives they can within it, have you begun to think about 2016 and ways you can uh, do more at the
4: ballpark to honor those involved with this? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're thinking about it. You know, we haven't come together with a lot, but um, we are so lucky to be part of of this industry. I can't even tell you the number of teams, the number of people have come up and said, "You know, whatever you're doing, we want to be able to help. We 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 we're there to help you." So, we're still in some brainstorming uh, stages right now uh, on some ideas of what we would like to do. But there's no doubt that it will be a continued effort because these families are going to need a continued effort. Um, You know, not just right now, not in just a month. Uh, You know, this was a life-altering event. And so we want to make sure that uh, that they know we're, we are there and, and we're going to continue to help.
3: Well, uh, you know, I commend you and your staff for the response so far, and it's unfortunate that this is the reason that we have to be talking. But sure. um, I hope this is something that the entire industry can come around to support, and I appreciate you you're sharing your perspectives on it and what you guys have done so far yeah thank you i appreciate it all right that's uh, joe hudson uh, general manager of the inland empire 66ers uh, go to the website at 66ers if you want to support uh, what they're doing sam bernardino strong sb strong and um in the meantime i'm ben hill for the show before the show podcast <laughs>
1: Thanks to Benjamin Hill, uh, and a really big thanks as well to Joe Hudson, the general manager of the Inland Empire 66ers, who talks d- to Ben during a very difficult time for his organization and his community. Um, and again, it's it's tough for us sometimes to to cross that boundary between minor leagues and real life. And uh, you know, Ben and I have had a lot of conversations about that too. And you and I have talked about that to an extent, Sam. Also, that it's sometimes we live in kind of an escapist world when you get to work in sports. And then when that's taken away from you, when you collide with something as awful as what they had to deal with. Uh, uh, in San Bernardino and, and with the 66ers, it's, you know, it's not cool, but that's what people rally behind communities need that. And uh, so it's interesting to get um, Joe Hudson's take on all of that. And a big thanks to Ben as well. Um, we're getting set to wrap this thing up ordinarily. This is where I would ask Sam as we were coming into this segment, what do we got coming up on mill TV this week or something like that? But that's, that's not that far off though. We're like four ish months away. And then yeah. we'll be having those conversations again.
0: Yeah, well, one thing we're going to try to start doing, I can kind of plug, um, is that we're going to try to start doing videos uh, with analysis a little bit. I, I recorded one earlier this week. We're trying to get it up on the site of uh, you know some highlights of Danby Swanson, some highlights of Aaron Blair with uh, my voice, which so if you enjoy hearing my voice, which you may or may not, I don't know. uh, We're going to have videos on the site of, you know, just breaking down the trade over some B-roll of the teams, and hopefully we're going to be doing more of that as trades happen once we get into the season, as promotions happen. So uh, I'll I'll pitch that and kind of – we don't have actual games to watch this weekend unless you're big time into the ABL or something. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll throw that out there, and that's something to look forward to on the site coming up. Those weird people who are way into the APL.
1: Um Also, in case you had not noticed, Sam Dykstra, just the man doing everything at MILB.com. They put the two of us on this podcast because they were like, one of you just be like the moron who talks, and the other one is Sam. He's a genius. So go read all of Sam's stuff. It's at MILB.com. Uh, I've got Mariners organization all-stars. You're probably listening to this on Friday or perhaps over the weekend. That's up. We're we're running down to the end of those. Um, I've got our last one, which is Washington Nationals. That is the day before Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve Eve, so we're almost done with all-stars which is crazy
0: yeah that would kind of be people's christmas present or you know end of the year present whatever you want to call nice. that it's just to read all of them i'm sure over the break we'll just be uh plugging those left and right and we have a landing page so you can catch
1: up on all of that kind of stuff here will be uh, some breaking you- news about the nationals one i'm imagining lucas giolito will be there call me crazy call uh, me crazy it's two weeks away spoilers but you're not spoiler spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Just ruining everything. Get
0: that to yourself, Mon. You're not supposed to be telling the people. Right?
1: Unbelievable. Uh, all right. Well, until next week. Uh, enjoy, uh, you know, a little bit more of off-season baseball. There's been some sweet sales going on. I saw MLB.com today was doing like a 35% off sale. People, get your stuff done. Get your Christmas shopping done. I have not even started it. It's December 10th. This is all terrible. <laughs> It's all very good. The good thing about the way my family operates
0: is that we text each other pictures of what we want. Oh, that's smart. So, like, my sister today texts me a picture. She's like, "Do you want the shirt on the left or the shirt on the right?" Oh, so you already know? Yeah, I already know. Oh, okay. It makes it easy, though. Would you go with everybody everybody actually gets what they want, and like, it's better than what my dad used to do. My dad used to buy the presents and say, "Just give me forty bucks for this thing I got." (laughs) I was like, "As long as you're happy, I guess."
1: (laughs) What a dad thing. That is fantastic. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I should probably get started. All right everybody, till next week. We'll talk to you then.